Okay, here we go. Extra time, Immaculate Grid for Thursday, the 27th of July. This is Grid 116 Baseball. I just smiled when I saw this grid today. We have NL West, San Francisco Giants, my favorite team, and the San Diego Padres. So NL West, I lived in the Sand Dog for a while. So got to see a lot of those uh, mid to late 90s teams play. So it was always fun to watch the Giants come down. But this was a fun grid today, and it was, again, an opportunity like yesterday to kind of put some favorite players in and also just some interesting guys with some fun facts and kind of hunt around and have fun. So for the... Columns from left to right, we have the Giants in the left-hand column. We have San Diego in the middle column. And the career achievement on the right-hand column, we have Gold Glove. Then going from top to bottom, we have the St. Louis Cardinals at the very top row. The Los Angeles, California Angels of Anaheim of Anaheim. Angels in the middle. And for the season achievement, we have 40 plus home runs for batting. So, like always, we start with the career achievements top right hand corner, Gold Glove, and St. Louis Cardinals. So, I actually dropped Mr. Jim Edmonds here. Got to see Jim Edmonds up close and personal watching him when I lived in Long Beach. And we had an opportunity to go through the company. I think I've told that story before, but nobody nobody wanted to go to the Angel Games. So that 1996, 98, 97, 98, 99, nobody wanted to go to Angel Games. And everybody wanted to go to Dodger Games. And our general manager was just basically anyone who would take an Angels ticket could go. And I was going a lot. I think one year I may have gone to, I don't know, 30 or 40 home games. But Jim Edmonds would win eight total gold gloves, six of those with St. Louis, two of them with the Angels. So I went with Edmonds there. But my friend Tony went with probably the one that everybody knows the most, Mr. Gold Glove himself, 13-time gold glover, Ozzy Smith. Fun little story with Ozzy. I was working for a different company, and I moved to St. Louis. And I had an opportunity to go to opening day for the Cardinals. And it was also World Series ring uh, presentation day, I guess is the better way of saying it, I suppose. And legitimately, our seats for the company were seats one, two, three, and four in row one. And it was at Old Bush Stadium. And it was right next to the door for the dugout or not the dugout, but for the umpires would come in and out of to go back to their dressing room. So that's where the seats were. And as things were kind of getting ready for first pitch and they were getting the ceremony and everything going, we were coming down into our seats. And while we were doing that, the Cardinals had several players there kind of greeting the season ticket holders and, and greeting them. And the first hand, I'm just walking down. I'm trying to figure out, you know, what I'm doing, getting my bearings, going down the steps. And this massive, 
massive right hand comes out to shake my hand. And he's like, hey, how's it going there, sir? Big, deep voice. And I'm sitting there thinking, who's this? I look up. It is Bob Gibson. And Bob Gibson is a mammoth of a man. I mean, as far as height goes, you know, maybe he's only 6'2", maybe 6'3". And if he's 6'4", maybe, I, I don't know. But the size of his hands. Now, I have big hands. I mean, I can palm a basketball very easily. My hands, compared to most people that I meet, are considerably larger than most. And I'm not saying that as a brag. It's just a function of that's just how it is. And Bob Gibson made my hands feel tiny. Typically, when I shake someone's hand, you know, I always notice how much larger my hands are when I can fully grip or encompass their hand when I shake their hand. Bob Gibson did that to me. And not only did he do that to me, but the grip on that gentleman's hand. And he's got to be 25 years older than I, I was. I mean, the dude was strong and his forearms were massive. And I was just thinking about being a batter in those mid to late 60s facing him and why he was so dominant. The guy was just so large and so intimidating. And then you have that guy throwing at your, you know, at your dome if you disrespect him. And you don't want to charge the mound because that dude legitimately could break you in half. And so that was Bob Gibson. And then the next thing who's standing behind him, who I didn't even see him because he's overshadowed right behind Bob Gibson is Ozzie Smith. And, you know, I'm just under six feet tall. I'm, you know, pretty decent shape. And Bob Gibson made me look like, you know, a Lilliputin. But from me to Ozzie Smith, it was almost the same kind of drastic change. So the difference between Smith to Bob Gibson was incredible. But I mean, to me, to Ozzie, Ozzie is a, was a, is a small guy. And it just shows how skillful he was to be able to play as long as he did in the major leagues and to be as elite as he was in defense to being that, you know, in stature, small person um, just shows his incredible greatness and excellence. And by no means am I an Ozzie Smith fan. And we'll talk about this, I'm sure, in subsequent podcasts. But um, in general, I, I kind of hate the Cardinals. I mean, the Giants and the Cardinals had a lot of beef in those mid to late 80s. And, uh, you know, because of that, I was never a, really a Cardinals fan. Also, I may have mentioned this on previous podcasts, but my grandfather was a big, you know, baseball fan, big Cardinal fan, grew up in Arkansas, listened to KMOX, and his team was the Cardinals. And I kind of hated the Cardinals because, you know, he wasn't really the greatest or nicest person. And so his favorite team was the Cardinals. And so from that, you know, kind of was born out some of this hatred for the Cardinals. And then the Cardinals had beef with the Giants and Jose Akendo and Ozzie Smith tried to team up on Will Clark and Akendo tried to sucker punch Will and all kinds of stuff. So anyway, we'll talk about that in another another episodes. But Tony went with Ozzie Smith and I just remember shaking Ozzie Smith's hand and going, wow, this guy is tiny. And then the last bit of that is the other guy that was there 
was Stan Musial when he was still alive. And at this point, I'm not sure exactly how old Stan Musial was, but he leads Major League Baseball all time, I believe, in total bases. Many Hall of Famers say that aside from Mays, he is the greatest baseball player to ever play. And if you haven't had an opportunity to kind of peruse his career statistics, I think his career high is only 47 home runs. But you look at his batting averages, you look at his on-base and slugging, you look at his the number of doubles and his defense, elite defense that this guy had. By most accounts, if you read a lot of interviews with other players of that era, before and after, if you listen to interviews, outside of Mays, pretty much everybody says the greatest baseball player after Mays is Stan Musial. And even at his advanced age, again, I'm going to guess he was well into his 80s, and if he was 90 or 91, I wouldn't be surprised when I met him. But even at that age, you know, he was probably as, as big as I was. But even at that age, his grip was incredible. And he was very gracious, very nice, very kind. Didn't know me from Adam, right? I'm just there on company tickets to go watch a game. And you know, not even a Cardinal fan. And the guy was just just super class. So that was my experience, you know, with with Ozzy, Bob Gibson, and Stan Musial. So for Gold Glove, I went with Jim Edmonds and Tony went with Ozzy Smith. So then we go down one, so the middle, middle row, far right column, gold glove and, and the Angels. So I went with Darren Erstad, and Tony flopped. He went Edmonds here. So he went Edmonds for the gold glove with the Angels. We mentioned before he won, you know, he won two with the, uh, with the Angels. He won six with St. Louis. So Tony went, went Edmonds there. I went with Erstad. Erstad would win three gold gloves with the Angels, two of which were in the outfield, one at first base. And we talked a little bit about him the other day, University of Nebraska. But that, 19, that 2000 season, he finished second in war with 8.3, led the league in hits with 240, batted 355 that year. And strangely enough, he finished eighth in MVP voting um that was also the year that giambi won mvp but a rod would finish third in mvp voting that year and would lead the league in war with 10.4 but just the video game level numbers that were coming out of 2000 that are a stark difference from you know we discussed mike sweeney yesterday he had a very fine season in 2000 but it just wasn't some of these video game numbers that uh, were starting to kind of appear. So now we go down to the bottom right-hand corner. So far right column, <clears throat> number three, gold glove, bottom row, 40-plus home runs. So there's a lot of opportunities. There's a lot of answers here for 40 home runs and a gold glove season. And again, shamelessly, Giants fan, I had to go with Barry here. So Barry did 40 home runs and a gold glove three times. And to my assumption, my presumption, and maybe even my accusation, 
But based on, you know, being a Giants fan, living in the Bay Area at that time, I pretty much, out of 162 games, I either watched or listened to on the radio pretty much every single game. Maybe not the entire game, but at least large, large chunks of it. Barry did that three times in 1993, 1996, and 1997. We're going to talk more about this as we get into the rest of the grid, but my assertion is Bonds was clean during those years. So if you look at the testimonial evidence, if you look at the news reporting, if you look at the statistics of Barry, and there is an anecdotal piece of evidence of when I believe Barry started using steroids. So the 1998 season is the year that Sammy and Mark McGuire went crazy and nuts and broke the single season home run record at that time. My assertion is Bond started using the following year, 1999. And the anecdotal evidence that leads me to believe that he didn't start until 99 was because that was the year he had the elbow problem. And he was injured most of that year, would come back in 2000 and you know kind of pick it up and start to mash again but elbow injuries ligament injuries and i've been around a lot of you know not professionals but people that body do bodybuilding and uh you know i've lifted weights and i've been in the gym and, and done that kind of stuff not really for bodybuilding but more just to be healthy and, and strong and you know i want to live a long healthy life but pretty much Everyone to a T that I've ever talked to, and I know and I've known lots of people to, you know, use performing enhancing drugs, steroids specifically. And every single one of them have told me. That injury that Barry had was very indicative of a new steroid user who overdoes it. And what steroids does for you, and I'm sure this has been, you know, hashed and rehashed over and over and over again but what it does is it really allows for recovery time and it allows you to be in the gym it allows you to lift it allows you to get up and play you know 162 games and recover very quickly but one of the things that it it's a little bit slower is it allows your muscles to recover you know the muscle fibers but it takes a little bit longer for your ligaments and those kinds of things your tendons to start seeing the benefits of steroids. So if you come out too hard, too fast, a lot of these guys get, you know, those kinds of shoulder injuries, elbow injuries, um, tendon, ligament injuries. And that's very much what Barry Bonds had. So for those that all just remember him, oh, he, he always goes up there. No wonder he walks because he's not afraid because he's got that big old thing around his elbow. Well, that's what that's from. It's from 1999. He didn't have that until 1999. And that was from that injury. And presumably, again, this is my assertion and anecdotal evidence is that injury is when he first started to use and he was over overdoing it first out the box, 1999. So he was a 40 home run and gold glove winner three times prior to that. And if you went Google it, there's several articles that 
Barry Bonds actually has two Hall of Fame careers. He has the Hall of Fame career from, you know, his rookie year of 1986 to um, basically 1998, and then a second Hall of Fame career from 1999 to call it 2007. So I went with Barry, and, and strangely enough, or oddly enough, you know, Tony's a unabashed, you know, shameless Giants fan like I am, so he went with Bonds as well, so that was 9%. So now let's go to the bottom left-hand corner. So San Francisco Giants and 40-plus home run season. Again, Tony and I fill these things out separately, but we both went with Kevin Mitchell, our man Kevin Mitchell. I mean, he was a character, and he was a huge fan favorite for the for Giants fans. We loved we loved him a lot. That gold tooth. I think one of the things that cemented him was I believe it was 1987. No, I guess it wouldn't have been 87. I'm gonna guess 88. And possibly even 89, but it's the barehanded catch in, in left field in the old Bush Stadium. And uh, for those that don't remember, don't recall, you know, they asked him flat out, you know, what made you stick your hand up? And in his interview, he said, well, I misplayed the ball and I kind of overran it. And so my only choice was to stick my right hand up and grab it <laughs> because I overran it and I overran my glove hand. So at least he was honest. I would subsequently, when I was living in San Diego, this is in the uh, mid to you know late 90s, I would actually, he was, at this point, he went to the Reds, got injured, went to Japan, and was still injured, and it turned out uh, he had a broken kneecap. And I learned this because I ran into him at a restaurant uh, one evening, I'm just going to a restaurant, and strangely enough, I'm wearing a Will Clark t-shirt and i walk into this restaurant and there he is with this big crowd of people and we're in mission hills and sand dog and uh kevin mitchell sees me walk in with my wife and he kind of yells over to me he goes oh so you're a will clark fan huh and i said well yeah and i kind of look at him with a strange kind of look like i know this guy and of course at this point in time, this would have been probably 95 or 6. And so he's he's at the end of his career. And he doesn't look anything like he did as a giant. I mean, he was, you know, he's not the tallest guy. Super, super thick. Super, super, super strong. But at this point, you know, now he's getting a little pudgy. And, uh, you know, he might be 5'10", maybe. So I kind of look at him strange. And then he he flashes the smile. And as soon as he flashes the smile and I see the gold tooth, I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's Kevin Mitchell. So I just kind of wave at him, go on our merry way. We have dinner. And then on the way out, he's actually still in the parking lot talking with some folks. And, you know, we're walking back to our car and he goes, oh, there's the Will Clark fan. And I'm like, you're Kevin Mitchell, aren't you? And he goes, yeah, I am. And I ended up talking to Kevin Mitchell in the parking lot for like 20, 30 minutes and just asking him about his time with the Giants and, you know, it, was he going to get back in the league? And he was just telling me that he had, didn't know, but he broke his kneecap and he was recovering from that and trying to figure it all out. And uh, he wasn't sure if he was going to uh, get back in the league or not. But he was a really, really nice guy. And it was it was it was kind of fun that, you know, he was poking fun at me because of my shirt and 
you know, I was, I was asking him about Will and, you know, he was kind of joking about that because he and Will kind of had a little bit of friction, but it was okay. And uh, no, he was, he was great. But that 1989 season, he hit 47 home runs, led the league, had 125 RBI, and he led the league in slugging and OPS. So he had a 635 slugging and he had a, a 1.023 OPS that year. Um, that was also the year, so he had a 6.9 war. Will actually had a higher war than he did. Will had a war of 8.6. And that was the year Will was battling back and forth to the very end for the batting title against Tony Gwynn. Will would finish with 333, finish second. But looking back on that year, 1989, the year that Mitchell hit over 40 home runs, he had 47 for the Giants. 1989, Lonnie Smith, outfielder at that time for the Braves, actually led the league in war at 8.8, and he would finish MVP 11. Now, in 1989, you need to remember, the Braves were in the NL West. So there's only two divisions, West and East. The Reds the Astros and the Braves were all in the NL West. It was kooky. And at that point in time, in 89, I did not look this up, but I'm pretty sure the Braves were probably last, and they were probably dead last by a lot. And so this is that time where you had in 1987, Dawson would win MVP on a last place team. And so now this is 89, and, you know, the, the baseball writers were – our fickle bunch. And so how they decided to choose an MVP from one year to the next is, is always funny because you can tell going back and looking at it, you can tell, Oh, well, there's a guy, you know, they clearly didn't favor, they didn't like, so they didn't vote for him. Cause there was at least somebody that had stats that could arguably be, you know, picked over them. And then the year that it was so obvious, then you would see, you know, the guy that they hated. Let's just take Barry as one example, because we're going to talk about a couple of examples here in just a little bit of where Bonds very much arguably should have been the MVP if you want to look at the numbers. But, you know, those aren't the only criteria necessarily for MVPs. But again, just shows who the writers liked or didn't like or the narrative that they wanted to create. So in 1989, Lonnie Smith led the league in war with 8.8. .8. Will was at 8.6. Mitchell, who won MVP, was at 6.9. Lonnie Smith would lead the league in on-base percentage with 415, but he only played in 134 games. He had 21 home runs and he had 25 stolen bases. Also, another fun fact about Lonnie Smith. Lonnie Smith won the World Series three times. He was on three World Series winning teams. Now, I could have told you two of them, no problem. But I was shocked to figure out the third one. So he actually won a World Series ring in 1985 with the Royals. Mark Gubitza, Bud Black, Brett Saberhagen, George Brett, Willie Wilson, Frank White, you know, those guys. He would also win a World Series with the Cardinals in 1982. Willie Smith, Willie McGee, 
you know, those, those Tommy, Tommy Herr, I believe was, yeah, Tommy Herr was on the 82 team, I believe. Ted Simmons, maybe? Still? Terry Pendleton? Coleman? Lonnie Smith was on that team, 1982. But he would also win a World Series with the 1980 Phillies. Mike Schmidt, Pete Rose. Incredible. I didn't even know. Just blew my mind to see that. But in 89, Lonnie Smith led the league in war. Who knew? Finished MVP 11. So Tony and I went Kevin Mitchell, 40-plus home runs in a season. San Francisco, easy pick. Lots of choices there. Barry, Kevin Mitchell, Johnny Mize, Willie Mays, Willie McCovey, Orlando Cepeda, Melot. I think I got all of them. Maybe I missed one. I don't know. Oh, Matt Williams. I mean, Matt Williams hit between the strike-shortened season and the following season on 162 games. Matt Williams technically broke the record, had 62 home runs before Sammy and McGuire. But those are giants that hit over 40 home runs. So now we're going to get wacky here. San Diego Padres, middle column. And 40-plus home run season. I went Ken Caminiti. And Tony went with Greg Vaughn. So let's unpack this for a minute. Caminiti, by the way, came in at 22%. Here's the list of Padres that hit 40 home runs or more. Fernando Tatis hit 42 in 2021. And I don't think there's any argument there. He's one of, if not the best young piece of talent that Major League Baseball has today, even with his uh, PED suspension. But this is where you start to forget some things, or at least I did. 2009, 40 home runs, Adrian Gonzalez. We talked a few podcasts ago about just the litany of Padres players, young players that would leave and go somewhere else and do something with someone else. And the list being long. And here's another guy. We didn't even mention Adrian Gonzalez the other day. And Adrian Gonzalez was just, you know, if not, he, he's kind of like, I always, I always pictured him. He's the Tim Duncan of baseball. Doesn't look flashy. Doesn't make a you know whole lot of stink on anything. You might even go so far as to say it's boring. And the guy was just a gold glove winner, MVP caliber type player, just went about his business and was just great. And I think partially that's why I just forgot about him because he's he's like the Tim Duncan of Major League Baseball. But he had 40 home runs in 2009. Then. Bill Nevin had 41 home runs in 2001. And I forget about Phil Nevin. I mean, the guy was like a catcher. He was like a first baseman. He was an outfielder. I think he played some third base. He was like, for whatever reason, I just picture Phil Nevin as like a poor man's Paul Canerco. I mean, Canerco has 400 plus home runs. And Nevin, I don't even know if he has half that many. But for whatever reason, they're just kind of strike me as kind of the similar kind of guy. 
around for a really long time, professional hitter, didn't matter how old he was, didn't matter where he was, he could just hit. And uh, Phil Nevin was 2,141 home runs. So that's three. So there's two more Padres to have hit 40-plus home runs. So Ken Caminiti's one. We're going to go with Ken Caminiti first. So I chose Caminiti. He had 40 home runs in 1996. That was the year that he won the MVP. That's the year the Padres went to the World Series and lost to the Yankees. So 1996. Now, subsequently, Ken Caminiti would admit to taking steroids that season. So prior to that season, he had never hit anywhere near that many, and he would never hit nearly that many home runs again. And also, we are remiss, rest in peace, Ken Caminiti, gentleman, passed away at 41 years old. It turned out that he had a career um, riddled with addiction, and it also came out that he had a lot of mental challenges and abuse in, in his childhood, and uh, sounded like the guy had a very you know, tough life, and he would end up passing away doing speedballs at the age of 41. So I don't want to sp- speak ill of Ken Cam in any, any way, shape, or form. We want to just kind of stick to the baseball kind of component of it. So 1996, he would win MVP. Now here's where things get interesting. 1996 is the same year that Barry went 40-40. And he would lead the league in war with 9.7. Now, he would lead the league in walks with 151. But here's where the MVP voting that year is just wacky and just the type of numbers that some of these guys were putting up. Ellis Burks that year led the league in runs. He was playing with the Rockies, by the way. Led the league in runs with 142. He had the third highest war at 7.9. He would lead the league in slugging with 639. And he would bat 344. So, just... Just crazy numbers. And Ellis Burks finished third. The gentleman that finished second in war. So Barry was number one at 9.7. Ellis Burks finished third at 7.9. Bernard Gilkey had a war of 8.1 that year. Bernard Gilkey would finish 14th in MVP voting. That year, Gilkey was a Met. He had 108 runs, 17 stolen bases, 30 home runs, 117 RBI, and batted 317. 1996 was that, you know, was really that first year when things started to go crazy as far as numbers and as far as, you know, suspicion of of steroids and performing hands and drugs. But that was just a, a crazy, crazy year. So we're still on that center, center, center bottom, San Diego and 40 plus home runs. So that was Ken Kennedy in 1996. 
And by the way, Bonds that year, leading the league in war, 40-40 season, finished fifth in MVP voting. And again, I'm not advocating that Caminiti shouldn't have won the award that year. Just, just these way of comparison and kind of just putting some of those kind of things out there to give some context or attempt to give context of where things were at at that particular time. But it is, you know, you one could argue Barry should have been MVP that year. For the guy that won seven, for the guy that has the most in Major League history. So my friend Tony for San Diego and 40 plus home runs. Now I put Caminiti. But the gentleman that actually holds the single season home run record for the San Diego Padres, I'm actually slightly embarrassed that I did not pick him. And here's the reason why. The single season home run record for the San Diego Padres is 50. And that is held by a gentleman named Greg Vaughn, who also played for the Brewers. The fact that I did not remember this, I'm almost kicking myself. And my friend Tony did remember this. It's because Greg Vaughn went to Sac City. And he was a big deal in town growing up. I mean, the guy was pegged as a major leaguer, you know, when he was a kid, basically. And so we used to hear about him all the time and he'd be in the paper all of the time. Notice how I said paper, because that's how we were consuming sports back then. And we got our little, you know, three to five minute blurb on the 11 o'clock news at, at night that you have to stay up that would be in the last, you know, five to 10 minutes of the news broadcast. But Greg Vaughn, who Tony astutely chose, had 50 home runs in 1998 for the Padres. So here's a little bit on that. Vaughn would end up fourth in MVP voting that year. He was 10th in war. He batted 272, 363 on base percentage and a 597 slugging percentage. Now, 1998, you need to remember this is the year that basically, by all accounts, everyone said brought baseball back to life. Attendance was down from 1994 from the strike and 1998, 1998, that was the assault on Maris's record by McGuire and Sosa. Sosa would win MVP that year. And of course, to refresh everyone's memory, Sosa had 134 runs to lead the league, 66 home runs, was second to McGuire, led the league with 158 RBI. He would finish first. He had a war of 6.5. Vaughn, I'm remiss, I said it incorrectly earlier. Vaughn was 10th in war, finished fourth in MVP voting. Mark McGuire would finish second. He had a war of 7.5. And of course, 
McGuire led the league with 70 home runs, led the league in walks, had a, led the league in on-base percentage at 470, led the league in slugging at 752, and led the league in OPS plus, or OPS, excuse me, 1.222. So who do you think actually led the league in war that year? Well, if you can tell the way that I've been crafting this story so far today, it was Bonds with 8.1. And Bonds had 37 home runs, 122 RBI, batted 303, stole 28 bases, and was third in slugging. And I think that was the year that you know, the straw broke the proverbial camel's back where Bonds was like, all right, I'm done with this. These guys are doing this stuff. I was better than those guys. I'm almost or pretty much as good or better than them now. But, you know, I'm going to go do whatever they did or figure out what they're doing because I'm tired of this. And I truly believe that is kind of what happened. And I'm not defending Bonds in any way, shape, or form. I'm not condoning what he did. I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not trying to vilify the steroid era either. I'm very agnostic about it, actually. And I look at it as all things in life. Do whatever you want. And then once we as a society or once we as an organization or whatever it might be decide that something isn't acceptable anymore, then you make the rules or you make the laws accordingly to say, hey, we're going to legislate that out. But until we decide that something, you know, especially if it's something that doesn't hurt others. And, you know, that that's obviously very debatable on what that means. But, you know, Barry Bonds taking a performance enhancing drugs, you know, if you're going to tell me that, oh, well, he he hurt the sanctity of the game. Like, you know, get out of here with that. Like, there's a lot of hypocrisy baked into that statement and there's several examples that show inconsistencies with that statement for many 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 players so i'm not i'm not here from that and i'm not i'm not going to even debate that because i think that's a nonsense kind of argument but you know if barry bonds decides he wants to do performance enhancing drugs if mark mcguire decides they want to do performance enhancing drugs and you know anybody who goes well i wouldn't do that because of my body well you look at what's on the line the type of money that was on the line for these players, the type of prestige, the type of, you know, glory tied with all of that. And again, much of it can be argued back to to dollars. But I'm not going to take some pious road and say, yeah, I wouldn't remember would have done that. And again, if they decide to do something, it doesn't impact me in any way, shape or form. Like my life is not taken away from from that. Now, if they're doing that and it's, you know, it's legitimately taking you know, money or food out of my family's mouth or putting me in some kind of danger or my family members in danger, then then okay. But I mean, that that that's not what we have here. And so the fact that the league has legislated this stuff out is just because, okay, as a, as a league that decided it and we as a group, we said, okay, and that's how laws and, and things are created. And until that happens, what you do is what you do. And as long as it doesn't impact anybody else, what do I care? And if you tell me, oh, well, that impacted the ERA of this team or that was this, these guys that didn't make the major leagues because, you know, they they weren't cheating. So they would have had a better chance. Give me a break. 
the guys that were doing it were doing it. And there's guys that were doing it that still weren't that good. Like you still have to be an elite athlete. So those arguments that you've heard over the years, just get out of here with that. It's just, you know, those, those are people that don't know. Those people that don't know what it's like to have any facet or aspect of their life of, of anything being of greatness or even having the ability to recognize what greatness and excellence is. Well, if I would have done steroids, I could have. Yeah, OK. Yeah, just keep thinking that. As you can tell, I can get a little little salty with this conversation. What I'm trying to point out here really is the. Kind of inconsistencies in MVP voting and just kind of some of the interesting facts and interesting numbers that are baked behind all these different types of things. And, uh, you know, if you want to please feel free, you know, come at, you know, <laughs> give a go at me with your thoughts on this. I, I, I can comment them on all day long. I look at this very holistically and very agnostically on what individuals do. And uh, my mind isn't going to change otherwise. And it's been, you know, 20 some years, 30 years since most of this started to happen. And presumably most of it's gone. I'm not saying that doesn't exist still today, but not at its, you know, pervasiveness that it had before. But back to the grid. Greg Vaughn hit 50 home runs in 1998. <laughs> I mean, that is incredible. I don't care if the guy, you know, and, and I'm not aware of any uh, accusations against Vaughn, but Vaughn is very much, I mean, he was a big dude. So it wasn't like he was like some, some chump or anything like that. He was a big boy and he was, you know, he was a very good player and he was very, very famous in Sacramento. But, you know, he would not get anywhere near 50 again the rest of his career. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. So let's uh, let's round out the grid here. We still got some more anecdotes to kind of say. So in the top left hand corner, first first column, first row, you have Giants and St. Louis Cardinals. And I went with Jose Uribe at 0.1 percent. And you say who? And I'm going to say, look, that that is a shortstop of, of my team. My team, the Giants, you know, the 1985 Giants lost 100 games, so I don't even want to claim them because they weren't very good. And honestly, I didn't really watch them all that much. But 1986, Will Clark, Robbie Thompson coming in as rookies. Chris Brown would be traded. He was the third baseman. He would be traded uh, for Mitchell in a, in a year or so. Mitchell would actually win a World Series with the Mets in 1986. But Jose Uribe came to the Giants in possibly one of the worst trades that the Giants ever made in the history of the franchise. And it was panned. I mean, articles upon articles would be written about this for years and years and years. But the original Clark, number 22 with the Giants, was actually Jack Clark. And he was my favorite player before Will Clark supplanted him. But Jack Clark was a 19-year-old rookie originally with the Giants. And the Giants would trade him away basically for a bag of beans. I mean, they, they got nothing back. And the only starter that they got back that stayed on and actually played for multiple seasons was Jose Uribe. And Jose Uribe was kind of your, you know, I don't even want to say, because this will sound like a knock to Ozzie Smith. I don't want to say that he was a poor man's Ozzie Smith, but I mean, he was a poor man's Ozzie Smith. 
I don't think he hit as well as Ozzy. You know, I think Ozzy might have been a you know was a better better hitter. Ozzy was also a switch hitter. Ozzy stole more bases, but defensively, Uribe was just really, really, really solid, and he would be a mainstay for the Giants, basically to run eighty nine ninety, and he was the only thing that was left over from that Jack Clark trade. Now, in 1987, Jack Clark would lead the Cardinals to the NL East crown. He would finish third in MVP voting. He would lead the league in walks with 136. He would lead the league in on-base percentage with 459. He would lead the league in slugging at 597, and he would lead the league in OPS with 1.055. 35 home runs, 106 RBI. He only played in 126 games. But the other kind of irony out of all this is in 1987, and the NLCS, who did the Cardinals beat? The San Francisco Giants. And we can talk about the Tony Pena fly ball in the right field that Candy Maldonado misplayed that turned into a triple, which I still think should have been an error. And uh, Dave Dravecki, he was a gentleman that ended up having his uh, left arm amputated after um fracturing it and finding out that he had cancer in that arm when he was pitching in Montreal. But I believe Dravecki, I think the Giants lost that game 1-0 or 2-0. And Dravecki was was dealing pretty well until Maldonado misplayed the ball in the right field. Uh, we mentioned this on a podcast a few days ago or maybe a week ago, but that is the only the second time that a player from the losing team would win NLCS MVP, and that would be Jeff Leonard. He would hit three home runs in that series. So Jose Uribe, 0.1% for Giants and Cardinals. As an aside, my friend Tony went with Royce Clayton, longtime Giant, you know, shortstop, center fielder. He would go over to Cardinals. He was supposed to be, uh, you know, kind of the next great shortstop for the Giants and eh, you know didn't really quite work out I mean he Clayton was a solid player just just solid solid defensively but maybe not what the Giants were hoping for necessarily so top row middle column Padres and St. Louis Cardinals and this one also made me smile because my answer was Andy Bennis and I actually had the fortune of actually being able to meet Andy Bennis and I actually had took classes with him so at St. Louis University he and I actually attended a couple of the same business classes at St. Louis University and you know he was a he's a really guy nice guy he was cool he would hang out after class and you know classmates we'd sit around just chat I'd always hit him up talk to him about baseball him a little bit of a hard time and he was actually really good about it he was really really good about it i was probably a jerk and but he was super super kind it's super nice but um andy bennis played for both he was a big time big time prospect for the padres i remember his baseball card you know he was being pegged as a future hall of famer future cy young award winner super solid player fun fact he was the very first starting pitcher throughout the very first pitch for the Arizona Diamondbacks as an aside. 
But also another fun fact is he gave up home run number 100 to Mr. Barry Lamar Bonds. And he would give up four home runs to Barry, uh, which is tied for, you know, third or fourth, maybe fifth, something like that. But there's a lot of guys ahead of him that, you know, most notably great Maddox gave eight, gave up eight home runs to Barry Bonds. But Andy Bennis would give up four to Barry. His brother, Alan, would give up two more. So the Bennises together gave up six. But Andy Bennis gave up home run number 100 to Barry Bonds. So I, I remember having a chat about him about that. And he he told me pretty much Barry was the best, best baseball player he ever faced. But I'll tell you this much. Andy Bennis was not a small dude. I mean, that is just a huge human being. I talked about Bob Gibson before. Andy Bennis was very much similar size as Bob Gibson. The dude was just, he's just a big guy. And you know, they you, you may have heard the terms country strong or whatever you want to call. You know, he's from Illinois, um, went to Evansville College, but um, he's just a big boy, you know, and, and, and what I mean big, right? I'm not talking fat. I'm not, no, no, no. I'm just talking about just somebody who's just naturally large, just big muscles, big hands, massive grip, um, just like Bob Gibson. And here's the funny. If you go back to some of those games that Andy Bennis pitched, you know, he's always hitting, you know, they used to, he was a fireballer, quote unquote. And they're saying, oh, you know, that guy's throwing you know, 90, 91. And, and he was, you know, ripping it. And today you'd go, oh, 90, 91, that's nothing. Well, here's the thing you have to remember. When Andy Bennis was pitching, how they calculate, you know, how we were calculating the speed of the ball, the radar guns, we're catching the ball basically as it was, you know, hitting the, the catcher. Whereas today, you know, there have been a couple of iterations, but there's a good article, I believe it's the Washington Post, and that article is maybe a year old or so. It was definitely during COVID. But that article talks about, you know, the differences in the different times of when and where we started measuring the speed of baseballs differently. So when Bennis was pitching, you know, he's, he was throwing 90, 91. You go, you know, nine, you know maybe 92, topping out. And people, you know, you go today, oh, that wasn't very hard. Well, they were measuring that at the catcher, basically. Where today, we're measuring fastballs at the release point. And so, you know, there's a lot of variability that goes into this. But, I mean, you're effectively anywhere from 7 to 8, 9 miles per hour difference between those two measuring points. So when you tell me, if you were to tell me, oh, Andy Bennis was probably throwing 98, 99, maybe even touching 100 back in that you know, late 80s, early 90s, I believe you, because that is just a big human being. And knowing how we measure things differently and putting them into context, there's no way you could tell me that he wasn't throwing that hard because when I would go see him, I mean, he was throwing BBs. You, you'd go to a game and Andy Bennis is throwing BBs. And then you see Dennis Rasmussen up there and it just seemed like everything he was throwing up there was junk. You know, if you ever watched the first major league um, movie with Wesley Snipes and, and, you know, Charlie Sheen, 
and they have their junk baller guy. Like, that's what it looked like when some of these guys were throwing, right? It looked like they were throwing up a bunch of junk. I mean, there's a lot of movement, and I'm not saying in any way, shape, or form that I could have stood in there and had any kind of success. But when Bennis was up there, I mean, it was a BB. It was just like, pew, pew, pew. I mean, you could barely even see it. And by the size of that human being, and you telling me like, yeah, if we were to measure it the way we measure it now, he would have been throwing 98, 99. Yeah, absolutely. I believe you. So that's the anecdotes and fun facts around Annie Bennis for that middle section. And, you know, funny enough, my friend Tony went Ray Langford, which I don't even remember Langford on the on the Padres. Like, I totally remember him as a Cardinal, but I do not remember him at all as a Padre. So I thought that was kind of funny. So to the middle row, first column, we have Giants and Angels. And I went with Alan Watson, 0.1%. And you go, who? And that was just the flex to be able to say, I was at the very first interleague game for the Giants, which was against the Angels. And Alan Watson the year prior, so this would have been 1997. So the year prior, Watson was a starter for the Giants. And uh, I don't remember if it's free agency or what happened, but he was in 1997 was a pitcher for the Angels. And I was at the first series. For the. Interleague first interleague between the Giants and Angels and Rich Aurelia would end up hitting a grand slam off of Alan Watson. And that was, I believe, the first grand slam of interleague play. And I was at that game. And I have the commemorative ticket from that series for that game. So that's how I remember Alan Watson. So that was, uh, you know, that little flex to be able to say, I was there. I was there, I swear. So Alan Watson, 0.1%. And then in the middle row, I think it's turning into a thing to where, how many times can I put Dave Winfield in? So here's Padres and Angels. You know, Dave Winfield, 6%. We talked about him the other day about his you know, how he said that he'd be, he would have been Shohei Otani back when. I think the big thing with, with Winfield that I always remember was he wore the batting helmet without the ear flap. And if you talk about a player that could get away with it, I'm guessing Dave Winfield's one of those guys. Because Dave Winfield, right? It just, I, I never met him in, in person, but you can just tell from television that that dude's big. That is a big guy. And again, he was, only player ever to be drafted in all three major sports. So, you know, that guy had to be a big dude. And again, he was one of my just favorite players, even though that he never, he was never a giant, but Winfield always just kind of struck me as the commensurate pro. And he was also the guy that, you know what, doesn't matter what day it is. He can, he can climb out of bed and he can hit. And he's that guy that I wouldn't be surprised. You know, he's like, oh yeah, I could hit today. So that is the grid, 116 for Thursday, the 27th of July. Again, these posts at 9 p.m. So the new grids don't come out until now. That's 9 p.m. Pacific time. And the grids don't come out until 6 a.m. the following day now in Pacific time, whereas before at 9 p.m. midnight Eastern, they would come out. So if you listen to this before then, there might be spoilers, but we, we put that in the description. But interact with the show, share us your grids, share us your anecdotes. 
vote on the polls it makes this so much more fun i'm having a blast saturday we got a new full show of generations talking about my sports generations with steve so we've got the main show coming back up on saturday we will be doing grade 117 of course tomorrow so follow along share it with your friends uh, we're only on spotify right now no website or anything yet we're going to get those things going but uh share the link of these podcasts with your friends we appreciate it the more that are listening it just makes it that much more fun the more interaction makes it that more much more fun i get a i get a kick about you know hearing from my friend tony every single morning as as he's working on his grid and i'm futzing around with it as well but uh we'll see you here tomorrow have a great evening this is Extra Time, Immaculate Grid for the 27th of July, Thursday, Grid 116. And this is the bonus show from Generations, talking about my sports generations. All right, everyone, have a great evening. Take care.